Today's scripture is 2 Samuel, verse, chapter 16, verses 1 through 16. But before I read, please pray with me. Lord, may the reading and preaching of your word sink deeply into our hearts and minds so that we may know you more fully and follow you more closely. In Jesus' name, amen. 2 Samuel. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal of Judah to bring up from there the, the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which is on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and symbols. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand of the, to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how could the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fat, fatted animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
last summer's hit movie, Oppenheimer, directed by Christopher Nolan, tells the story of the famous theoretical physicist, Robert Oppenheimer, who's credited with being the father of the atomic bomb uh, for his role in the Manhattan Project. Uh, the Manhattan Project was the enormous effort during World War II uh, to develop the first nuclear weapons. And something that I felt that the film captured very well was the uncertainty uh, that the scientists themselves had about the power that they were unleashing through the splitting of the, of the atom. Uh, some of them were even concerned that they, they wouldn't be able to control the chain reaction that they started. Uh, they were afraid that it could destroy the whole world. And in one scene in the movie, uh, the army officer who was the, the director of the Manhattan Project, Leslie Groves, asks Oppenheimer, are we saying there's a chance that when we push that button, we destroy the world? Oppenheimer, Oppenheimer replies, chances are near zero. Near zero, the officer replied. And Oppenheimer says, what, what do you want from theory alone? Zero would be nice, uh, he said. Uh, thankfully, the, the, the bomb did not destroy the whole world, but the power unleashed was still incredible. And they called the first test of the bomb the Trinity test. We're in the middle of uh, the series on the life of David, and I want you to keep the power of the atomic bomb in mind as we consider our text today. Now, we're only going to comprehend what is happening in this text, especially uh, this moment when Uzzah uh, puts out his hand to, to touch the Ark of God, and, and he dies. Now, we're only going to understand this if we come to this text with the same mindset uh, that Oppenheimer had uh, as he considered the power unleashed uh, by the bomb. Uh, he stood in, pow in awe of this power, and he knew that it was on the edge of human ability to control. Uh, the Bible looks at divine power in a similar way, even more incomprehensible and beyond uh, the ability of human beings to manage or to manipulate in any way. And so let's consider what we learn from our text today about this kind of power. The events of 2 Samuel 6 take place in the days after David has finally been anointed as the king. Now Saul was killed in battle fighting the Philistines, and then David is able to defeat them, and uh, he's anointed as the king. And so what we read about in 1 Samuel 6 is this historic occasion. It's a, it's a victory march up to Jerusalem. David is a, establishing his new capital city there in Jerusalem. And, and to mark the significance of this moment, he decides to move the Ark of the Covenant uh, from Baal Judah to Jerusalem. And this isn't the first time that we've heard about the Ark in the story of David. If you've read all of 1 Samuel, you know that the Ark had earlier been captured by the Philistines, and this had led to all sorts of trouble for them. You can read about it in 1 Samuel 5. And so the, the Philistines had said, we don't, we don't want this Ark anymore in our territory, and they returned the Ark to Israel on a new cart, just like in our story today. So the Ark was this sacred box that served as a visible sign of the invisible reality of God's presence 
and his holiness in the tabernacle. It held the Ten Commandments, and on top uh, were these angelic figures, the cherubim. And you get a sense of what the ark meant to the Old Testament people of God in our text today in verse 2, which reads, And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. Notice here, notice that the writer, the writer could have just said they they were bringing up from there the ark of God, and then just gone on to verse 3, and and they carried the ark uh, on a new cart. But instead of just telling us what happened, he inserts this description of the ark which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. In other words, he's saying, you know, remember, when we talk about the ark, we're talking about God's divine presence dwelling on earth. Heaven and earth are intersecting at the ark. Because the ark was so important, the Torah gives very specific instructions on how to move it from place to place. Exodus 25 verse 12 describes the ark with four rings, two on each side, so that poles could be inserted through the rings, and four Levitical priests were instructed to carry the ark by the poles when they moved it. So if you know this background uh, from Exodus, what jumps off the page in our text today is that Uzzah and Ahio, the the sons of Abinadab, are not following these instructions. They're not carrying the ark as Moses instructed. They're not carrying it with the poles. Instead, they have loaded it onto a a cart, a new cart. And notice it says it twice in verse 3. A new cart, just like the Philistines. And this is what leads to the disaster, that the oxen stumble, and Uzzah puts out his hand to keep it steady, and he's struck down by God. I know this seems bizarre. Let me me offer uh, another analogy for understanding what's happening here. Again, related to uh, nuclear testing. Uh, I talked about Oppenheimer and, and the Trinity test. Well, soon after the first bomb was detonated and Japan surrendered, uh, atomic testing continued at the Los Alamos lab in New Mexico. And in one of the labs, scientists used a core of plutonium that was meant to be used in a bomb, but now was used for experiments. And they, they used this plutonium to start nuclear reactions under very controlled conditions. And to control the reaction from running out of control, over the plutonium, they put a a, a beryllium dome, uh, the sphere that needed to be kept cracked open uh, to let neutrons escape, which kept the the nuclear reaction from igniting and and going out of control. And one of the scientists, uh, Louis Slotin, had gotten in the habit of just sticking a screwdriver in between these two metal plates to keep it open. Wasn't how it was supposed to be done, but apparently it was 
it was faster and, and easier. Uh, well, one day, uh, as they were setting up an experiment, the screwdriver slipped. Immediately, there was a flash of blue light, there was heat, and Slatten ripped the dome off of the core within half a second. But by then, it was too late. He's reported to have said, well, that does it. He received a fatal dose of radiation, and he was dead nine days later. Others in the room were hospitalized for weeks with severe radiation poisoning. And after this accident, and another one like it, uh, with the same plutonium, they started calling this uh, plutonium, plutonium core the demon core. You notice how religious these scientists get at these edges? It's the, the Trinity test and the demon core. In the modern world, it's these kinds of physical realities that we believe are potentially most dangerous if we don't treat them with care. But in the worldview of the Bible, like in our text today, it's spiritual realities that are potentially most dangerous if we don't treat them with care. Think about Uzzah touching the Ark of God, kind of like Louis Slotin's casual approach to the plutonium. In the Bible, the holiness of God is as powerful and as potentially deadly as any radiation or high-voltage electricity. This hard reminder comes to David at a critical moment in the story as he takes the ark to the new capital of Jerusalem. David has to learn that though he is now the king, that doesn't mean he can make presumptions or assumptions about the Lord and how he will act. It doesn't mean that the Lord is under his control. God cannot be manipulated for some political purpose. He's not a totem for a nation or a political party. This may be important for us to remember as we look ahead to another election year. But even more broadly, it's a reminder that we're all always looking for something to fill us with a sense of awe and wonder, to know that we live in a universe that's bigger than ourselves. And if we don't stand in awe of the creator of the universe, we will give our devotion and our worship to something else. After Uzzah's death, David is humbled. How can the ark of the Lord come to me? He decides that he better think again about taking the ark to Jerusalem, so he leaves it at the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. But after three months, he hears that uh, Obed-Edom's home is being blessed by the presence of the ark, and he decides to try again. But as he takes it again, uh, there are two key differences in how David brings the ark uh, the second time compared with the first time. Now look at verse 13. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. First, notice it says, when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps. There's no mention here of any cart. 
Uh, it now appears that they're following the Lord's commands about how to move the ark, and they're, I think, also carrying it with the poles. And second, we also see here that David makes a sacrifice as the ark begins its journey to Jerusalem. It's not just that David does everything right this time by obeying God's commandments. The sacrifices show that he doesn't approach this moment lightly or with any presumption. He comes with a reverence and a recognition that he and the people can only come into God's presence through the power of sacrifice. He, he even wears this linen ephod, uh, which was a garment, a, a kind of vestment that only the priests wore. And David has become both a king and a priest in this moment. When the Israelites were in Egypt and uh, the final and, and the greatest plague came down upon the Egyptians, they put the blood of the Passover lamb on their doorways so that the angel of death uh, would pass over their houses. Every sacrifice since that moment pointed back to that basic truth. That yes, the Lord's presence could bring a horrible judgment, but also that he himself had made a way to life through substitutionary sacrifice. David shows us here that both reverence and joy are necessary for true worship. The first time that David attempted to bring the ark to Jerusalem, there was a lot of joyful celebration. You know, in verse 5, it says, And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. There was a lot of noise. But without reverence, the people's worship was shallow, and it led to catastrophe. But it's also easy to err in the other direction. You can have worship that's very reverent, but has no joy. And it's become stuffy and, and unapproachable. This is worship that lifts up a holy God, but makes him distant and uncaring. And that can be just as, as shallow and, and misleading as some kind of emotional excitement. But when you stand before a God who is holy and righteous and pure, and you believe that you are accepted into his presence because of his loving sacrifice for you, that's worship that's full of both joy and reverence at the same time. And it's this, it's this, this, this combination that's so powerful and, and what culminates in David's dance. David has found this newfound awareness of the reality of who God is. Now, this God is not under his control. There, there's an awe and an esteem for the Lord. At the same time, he has a confidence that he has access to God's presence through the power of a sacrificial atonement. It's this combination of reverence and joy, awe and acceptance, that makes Christianity so distinctive. Christians believe that the God of the universe has come in the flesh. And because he takes on human form, becomes like us, uh, he's more approachable than David could ever have imagined possible. 
At the same time, he remains the holy God, the king and judge of all. Like David, we, we need to see how these two realities hold together in the person and work of Jesus. In the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis gives a, a picture of this in, in the character of Aslan. In the first book, in the, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the children of Narnia are introduced to Aslan by a Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And as Mr. and Mrs. Beaver talk about uh, the king, Aslan, at first the, the children assume that Aslan is a, is a man. But then Mr. Beaver explains that, no, Aslan is a lion. And uh, listen to what he says. Uh, Mr. Beaver replied, Aslan a man? Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the woods and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. The same thing is, is true of the, the God of the Bible. He isn't safe, but he's good. And if you worship him, he's not going to fit into your life comfortably like some new hobby. If he is really God, then you will find your life in relationship to him. This is what we see in Jesus, who would walk up to people and say, follow me. And they would leave everything and follow him. Our worship and our prayer lives become superficial when we forget this reality of who God is. This happens when we make him safe in some way, but it also happens when we lose sight of his goodness. Now, let me explain. When we make him safe, uh, we ignore his holiness. Uh, we don't pay attention to his commandments and, and the moral character that he requires. We accommodate him to our lives and our priorities and our desires kind of like David co-opting God into his move to Jerusalem. And we can do the same thing so easily. We fit God into a corner of our lives rather than giving him free reign and submitting to his sovereign rule in every area, in our relationships, in our finances, in our career choices. Now, why would we expect to enter into the, the presence of the Holy One when we haven't treated him as holy? But it's not enough to simply believe that God is holy and worthy of worship unless you also believe deep down that he is good, you'll be driven by fear rather than by joy. It's when you're convinced that this holy God loves you more than you could ever imagine by sending his son to sacrifice himself on your behalf, then you can both 
be certain that this is a holy God and that this God welcomes you and accepts you. You can enter his presence with confidence. You might even be able to dance before him. So often we don't believe that this kind of joy is possible. You may have heard uh, in the news recently of the, the cryptocurrency entrepreneur and investor Sam Bankman-Fried, also known as SBF. Uh, he's just 31 years old. And at his peak, maybe, maybe just 18 months ago, his net worth was estimated at $26 billion. Uh, but late last year, in December, uh, his uh, investment firm, FTX, uh, collapsed in scandal. Uh, he and his company went into bankruptcy. And now he's in prison, awaiting uh, trial for, for mismanaging the funds of, of hundreds and thousands of people. However, the interesting thing about this guy, SBF, is he's not without a moral conscience. Uh, prior to his incarceration, uh, he was a proponent of what's uh, called uh, effective altruism, which is a way of approaching philanthropy that seeks to maximize the good done for the dollars spent. And he gave away millions of dollars based on these principles. Uh, and in recent notes shared uh, with a reporter, he reflected on his life and um, uh, in, and where he was at uh, while he was under house arrest. And he, he wrote this about himself. I'm broke and wearing an ankle monitor and one of the most hated people in the world. There will probably never be anything I can do to make my lifetime impact net positive. There will probably never be anything I can do to make my lifetime impact net positive. I know it's, it's hard to have compassion on these billionaires. <laughs> but I have a lot of compassion for this young man. So often we live with just this kind of mindset. You know, that it's, it's up to us to make our lifetime impact net positive. And when we do well, and we feel like we're making a difference, uh, we're filled with joy. And when we fall short, we despair. We beat ourselves up. And we can be filled with bitterness. Friends, if we approach life uh, and with this kind of mindset, it's, it's some kind of scorekeeping, none of us can do anything to make our lifetime impact net positive. But the good news of the gospel is that our success in life is not dependent on our efforts. In the gospel, God offers you a free gift of grace. He doesn't lower his standards of holiness and goodness. Instead, in Jesus, he makes himself the sacrifice of atonement that brings you into his presence just as you are, with all your failures and your sins. He invites you to come to him for your righteousness, your justification, rather than seek to accomplish these things on your own, with all your own efforts. When you see what he has done for you out of love, then you'll love him in return. You'll want to love and serve others as 
You have been loved and you have been served. Let me close with this. There's a scene in the book of Revelation in chapter 5 uh, where the Apostle John is told uh, to look for a lion, the, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And he turns and he looks and he sees a lamb, a lamb standing as though it had been slain. This is what we remember today. Jesus is the lion, the Lord whom if we saw his glory, we would fall down on our faces before him. And he is the lamb who was slain, the savior who gave himself for our sins. And this is the one who says to us today, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Do you believe this? Let's believe it together. Let's pray. Our Father, we do pray today that you would show us your glory, that we would stand in awe before you and sing your praises, knowing that you are infinite and eternal and unchangeable. And we also pray that you would show us more of your love, that we would know that you have made it possible for us to stand in your presence, uh, that you have revealed uh, your, the full extent of your love to us in the person and work of Jesus. So we lift him up today. We pray that we would know him as the lion and as the lamb as we continue to worship you. In Christ's name, amen.